Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report. I'm Diane Rebecca here on Tube City Online Radio, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc. And if you are new to the show, we deal with consumer issues. And this show is heard Sundays at 4 p.m., Tuesdays at 6 p.m., and Thursdays at 9 a.m. However, if you miss any of our regularly scheduled show, uh, you can catch the podcasts. Uh, any of these podcasts are on iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker, just to name a few. So, here we are, another week and another year. This is the first show of the year, believe it or not. <clears throat> haven't uh, had a show for a while because um, I was dealing with some technical difficulties and trying to make the quality of the podcast uh, better. And hopefully I have done that. Uh, So we'll see. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, uh, today we're going to be doing something that we've done before. Uh, As you know, I take a lot of information from Consumer Review Magazine, and I uh, sometimes go and go into the Consumer Report Magazine Ask the Experts section. They have a lot of interesting questions there, so I thought it would be interesting to compile a list of these questions and the answers that people got Uh, for these questions. All right. So if you have any ideas of any products or services you would like to hear on this show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. So just to let you know, and also if you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard on the show, you can also uh, email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. All right. So how about if we go on with these questions, plus I have some um audio from some videos that I thought were pertinent to these questions. So we'll be also listening to those. So let's go ahead and get to those questions. Now, the uh, first two questions, of course, have to be coronavirus related, right? We can't go through a day without (laughs) something coronavirus related. So here are a couple of questions. Consumer Report asks the experts uh, question is, is it okay if I skip the flu shot this year? I'm vaccinated against COVID-19 and work from home. Here is how Consumer Report magazine answers. It's not wise to skip the flu shot because COVID-19 vaccines won't protect you from the flu. And health experts are predicting that this year's flu season could be severe with the respiratory virus circulating along with others, including SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. 
last winter with some of the strictest precautions against COVID still in place, transmission levels of the flu were historically low. And as a result, there were far fewer cases than usual. But what that means is that this year, many of us may have a lower level of natural immunity against the flu than in a typical season. Uh, This may be more worrisome for children than for adults who have less immunity in general to the flu. The CDC estimates that flu vaccinations averted about 105,000 hospitalizations last year. So, the best time to get a flu shot is in the fall. Well, we are now in January, so, I mean, I I don't think it's ever too late, but I guess uh, now you could get yours. So get yours as soon as possible. And for those who haven't had their COVID-19 vaccine yet, and those planning to get a booster shot, you can get it at the same time you get your flu shot. All right, so there's that. Now, here's a strange question. I never even, honestly, I never related these two together as far as COVID-19 is concerned, but here's what somebody asked uh, Consumer Report magazine. Will taking melatonin help prevent (laughs) COVID-19? Is that strange? I mean, I've never heard that. I mean, maybe most people have, and I don't even know, but (laughs) I thought it was kind of strange that, uh, you know, melatonin would have some positive effect on if you have COVID-19. Uh, So here's what Consumer Report magazine answered. The sleep supplement Americans have spent the most on is melatonin, a hormone naturally produced by the body that governs our sleep-wake cycle. In 2020, melatonin sales grew a staggering 42.5% to $687 million, according to Nutrition Business Journal, perhaps driven not only by the desire for shut-eye, but also by reports suggesting that it may help protect against COVID-19. But whether it works against the virus is unclear. One study found that it was associated with a 28% reduced risk of testing positive for the virus, and other preliminary research suggests that it might help people with severe COVID-19 symptoms. Now, uh, Consumer Report magazine continues, we do know, however, that COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective, so if you want to protect yourself and your family, they remain your best bet. Research on the effectiveness of melatonin as a sleep aid is mixed. The short-term use of this supplement is generally considered safe, although some people report side effects such as headaches, dizziness, and nausea. Talk to your doctor before taking melatonin, especially if you use any other medications. Now, here's something surprising that I did not know. Uh, So listen carefully. This supplement can interfere with other drugs, making some, such as certain blood thinning medications, less effective. So, you see, you learn something new every day. All right. Moving on to just general health questions. Can a dehumidifier help protect me from the flu? And here's how Consumer Report Magazine answers. The best way to protect yourself from the flu is to get a flu shot, along with diligent hand washing. But humidifying your indoor air may also be a good idea. 
There's evidence that the flu virus spreads more easily in dry air. For example, research has found that the virus is more easily transmitted through air when the humidity level is below 50% and less likely to be transmitted when the air is more humid than that. While this research isn't conclusive, using a humidifier is still a good idea. Keeping your indoor humidity levels between 40 and 60% to help reduce flu risks. And uh, Consumer Report magazine goes on to say, just don't go above 60%. Humidity levels that are too high may promote virus spread. Other research has found that moderate humidity makes virus particles heavier, so they may hit the ground more quickly after being expelled by a cough or sneeze and thus be less likely to be inhaled by you. The same principle may also apply to the coronavirus, through more re- though more research is needed there. So there you go. There are your general health questions. So let's move on to a finance question. Uh, a, a Consumer Report magazine reader asks... Are there any banks that don't charge overdraft fees? And here's how Consumer Report Magazine answers. They do exist, and it's a good thing. Almost 1 in 10 customers routinely spends more than they have in their checking account, incurring overdraft fees averaging about $34 each time. But some banks offer more flexible low- or no-fee alternatives. For example, Ally Bank has eliminated overdraft fees on all its accounts. Now, I don't know, we're here in Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, McKeesport actually, to be uh, more <laughs> localized. Uh, so I don't know if we have any LA banks here. However, we do have PNC banks, and PNC Bank offers a low cash mode feature, which provides grace periods and other fee minimizing options. And a growing number of banks, including Wells Fargo and Citibank and credit unions offer bank on checking accounts, which have no overdraft fees. So shop around and keep in mind that some offerings are more consumer friendly than others. They also uh, go on to say um, some offerings are less generous For example, PNC Bank's low-cash mode features gives customers at least 24 hours to bring up their balances. Otherwise, a $36 fee is assessed once a day. So, even if overdraft fees are waived, banks can also levy fees in other ways. You could be charged ATM fees and return check fees. So, be sure to look closely at account fee disclosures before signing up. Okay. Car questions. What's the best way to defog a car windshield? Now, (laughs) I had a Grand Am before I have the car that I had. And I had no problems with this whatsoever, defogging the car windshield. I now have a Dodge Dart. And I now have trouble figuring out how to defog the car windshield. I always thought that you did the same thing to each car, but apparently not. So, and I guess other people have have had questions regarding this too. So, let's see what the answer was from Consumer Report Magazine. 
On a cold day, the moisture in the air inside your car quickly turns to condensation and fogs up your windshield. In most cars, the first thing to do is to hit the defrost setting on your dashboard. This directs dry, warm air toward the interior of the windshield, which helps melt any ice on its exterior. But it can also turn on your air conditioner, which acts as a dehumidifier, removing moisture from the air in the car and thus helping defog the interior side of the windshield. This process usually takes a few minutes. To speed things up, it may help to crack your windows slightly, especially if you have passengers. Their breathing adds moisture to the air. And be sure recirculation mode is shut off. See, I couldn't decide whether I was supposed to turn that on or turn that off, but now I know. When I'm trying to fog a car windshield, make sure recirculation mode is shut off. Resist the urge to rub gloves, a napkin, or your hands on the windshield. This can leave streaks that obscure your view in direct sunlight or when there are oncoming headlights. Okay, moving on to some food and cooking questions. Um, All right, I think we have two of these. Yes, all right. Here a reader asks, is an organic turkey healthier to eat? And Consumer Report magazine says organic turkeys are fed grain that isn't grown using synthetic pesticides, some of which can be harmful to people, and it contains no genetically modified ingredients or foods. The USDA organic seal from the Department of Agriculture also guarantees that the birds weren't given antibiotics after the first day of life. In conventional farming, these drugs are often administered to healthy food animals to prevent the diseases that crop up, partly because of the crowded conditions in which they're raised. And also, when you hear how antibiotics are becoming more and more, or are actually less and less effective against viruses and bacteria and people, this is probably one of the reasons why. I mean, if you're always eating food with antibiotics in it, it's no wonder that your any viruses or bacteria that you're trying to get rid of with antibiotics isn't really effective anymore. So that kind of uh, that kind of makes sense there. Now, uh, the Consumer Report magazine also goes on to say this kind of use is a big contributor to the development of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. That's when the bacteria, including those that cause illness, stop responding to some of the drugs designed to kill them, not just in animals, but also in people. Organic turkeys do tend to be smaller and cost more than conventionally raised ones. The difference in price can be about a dollar or more per pound, but near the holidays, keep an eye out for better deals. Okay, and then here is a second food uh, question. I'm craving a chocolate dessert that won't wreck my diet. Any suggestions? (laughs) Well, here's how Consumer Report Magazine answers that, although I'm not sure if I like the answer. So uh, here's how they answer. To satisfy your chocolate craving in a healthier way, Consumer Report's dietitians whipped up a treat you could feel good about, a 244-calorie chocolate tahini smoothie. It's made with unsweetened cocoa powder, which offers a rich, dense flavor without any added sugars, while boosting antioxidants and fiber. 
The tahini, a paste made from sesame seeds, provides health or heart healthy fats and gives the drink a creamy texture. Our single serving recipe still contains a good amount of sugars, which is 31 grams, but those come from a banana and a date and are balanced by a healthy combo of protein, which is 7 grams, fiber 9 grams, and fat 5 grams, which will help keep your energy levels stable. I don't know. I don't know about the tahini paste. <laughs> but, you know, I've never really tasted it, so maybe I shouldn't judge if I have never tasted it. Okay, so we're going to hear uh, from uh, a video uh, that was posted by Brightside. And it's called, What If You Stopped Eating Sugar for One Week? So let's take a listen. What would happen if you stop eating sugar for a week? Well, I don't know about you, but for me, my wife would probably stop calling me sweetie. Actually, eating too much sugar can seriously affect your health. It leads to weight gain, sharp mood swings, what do you mean by that? And even addiction. Some nutritionists consider sugar to be even more dangerous than fat, but we still don't pay enough attention to the amount of sugar we consume every day. What will happen to your heart, brain, and skin if you quit sugar at least for a week? Well, the changes are going to be incredible. In this video, we're going to tell you how you'll feel if you stop eating donuts, and even if it's worth the effort. Number 15. You'll overcome a serious addiction. Studies show, and that might sound shocking, that sugar is actually more addictive than cocaine. Lab rats were given cocaine until they became addicted to it. Then they were given a choice, either to continue taking cocaine or switch to sugar. You know what? 94% chose sugar. Hey, come on, what do you say? A little fructose here, huh? What other facts do you need to start eating less sugar? Well, okay, we have 14 more. Number 14. Your breath will be better. Sugar doesn't just cause gum disease and cavities, but also provides a source of food for bacteria. In these conditions, they reproduce more quickly, which results in a terrible breath. So, if you want to be more successful with the opposite sex, you better stop eating sugar immediately. Oh, a box of chocolates for me? Ha! Never touch the stuff! By the way, sugar is often linked to the development of numerous lung conditions, so lowering sugar intake results in weakened asthma symptoms. Number 13. You'll increase your brain power. Studies have shown that sugar hinders such activities as learning and memorizing things. So, believe it or not, when preparing for the exam, it's better to stay away from chocolate and other... You mean stay away from chocolate. That's what it said. Okay. And other sugar-containing kinds of foods that are believed to increase your brain activity. Less sugar means more knowledge. And it says so right here. Number 12. You'll be less likely to have Alzheimer's disease. There's a chemical in your brain known as BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. It helps the brain to form connections and make new memories. Drop in the factor has been linked to eating excessive amounts of sugar. 
Number 11. Your skin will look younger. A study in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition suggests that giving up sugar may result in your acne disappearing. Sugar is inflammatory, and inflammation is a known cause of acne. Well, this is starting to make sense. Number 10. Your heart will thank you. People who eat too much sugar have a much higher risk of having a heart attack. Sweet drinks like soda are believed to be a trigger of coronary artery disease. Another important thing is that giving up sugar will lead to the decrease of insulin level and drop of the average heart rate. Your blood pressure will also decrease, which means that your heart and your vessels will have less work to do, so such conditions as stroke or artery disease will become less likely. Number 9. You'll have less bad cholesterol. High sugar intake raises levels of bad cholesterol and blood fats that can clog your blood vessels, leading to severe heart conditions that can be a huge threat to your life. Take care of your blood vessels while you still can. Number 8. You'll have a much better mood! <laughs> yes, being pretty irritable right after you say no to sugar is normal. Be careful, as temptation is everywhere. All the muffins, milkshakes, and other super delicious things. But when you're done with your diet change, you'll feel much better. Studies found that people who eat very little sugar or none at all are rarely diagnosed with depression. The world around you will change when you change your diet habits. Number 7. You'll finally get a good sleep. High sugar intake interferes with your normal energy level. It's okay to feel sleepy and sluggish after giving up sugar, but when your body adapts to it, you'll be very active throughout the day and ready to sleep when the bedtime comes. Your day-night cycle will be more naturally balanced. Sweet dreams! <laughs> uh oh, there's more? Oh, yeah. Number 6. You'll be less likely to have diabetes. When you eat too much glucose, high insulin resistance develops. It means that sugar can't get into your cells and can get stuck in the bloodstream. This leads to a pre-diabetes condition and, finally, to the real disease. Number 5. You'll lower the risk of having cancer. Pancreatic cancer is often linked to high sugar intake. However, the results of the studies haven't been entirely consistent. It's better not to take the risk on this one. Number 4. Your eyesight will be sharper. Sugar also affects the health of your eyes. Fluctuations in insulin and glucose levels lead to vessel damage and decrease blood supply to your eyes. As a result, the eye sharpness drops, and such conditions as myopia and cataract may develop. If you don't want to look like DiCaprio from Inception, give up sugar now. Number 3. You'll lose weight fast. When you eat a lot of sugar, especially fructose, you are very likely to overeat. The pancreas is forced to produce more insulin, 
so other hormones that regulate metabolism, digestion, and weight are neglected. So, the body sends you wrong signals that it's time to have a snack. Don't let this cunning sugar fool you. Number 2. You'll see your doctor less often. Your immune system is seriously affected by consumption of large amounts of sugar. You are protected from bacteria and viruses by white blood cells. Their efficiency drops dramatically when you eat simple sugars like glucose, fructose, and honey. Sugar also causes the development of cavities and gum disease. So you have a chance not only to see your doctor less often, but also your dentist. We don't think you'll be missing them a lot. And number one, you'll save a crazy amount of money. Stop eating sugar and spending money on doctors, dentists, those expensive acne concealers, and sweet food and drinks that only harm you. Just imagine what you can use the saved money on. Traveling? New clothes? Yeah, you're going to need a lot of them after losing extra pounds. Or a hobby you could never afford before. Have you ever tried to stop eating sugar? Tell us about your experience in the comments below. Don't forget to like and share this video with your friends to make them healthier. And click subscribe to join us on the Bright Side of Life. Ah, so how does the tahini paste sound now? Alright, moving on to more food or cooking questions. Is there more caffeine in an espresso shot than in a cup of coffee? Consumer Report Magazine answers, no, ounce for ounce espresso has more caffeine, 63 milligrams of caffeine in one ounce, roughly the amount in a shot, according to the Department of Agriculture Nutrition data. Regular coffee, by contrast, has about 12 milligrams of caffeine in every ounce on average. But who stops at one ounce of coffee? If you drink an 8-ounce mug of your home brew, you're getting about 95 milligrams of caffeine or more. And at Starbucks, an 8-ounce cup of its Pike Place medium roast coffee has 155 milligrams. So, if you're looking to cut down on your caffeine intake, replacing your cup of brewed coffee with just a single shot of espresso is a good option, as long as you stick to drinking just one shot. Alright, the next food or cooking question is, got any hot tips for grilling outside in the winter? In past years, Super Bowl Sunday has been the most popular grilling day of the winter, with 23% of owners breaking out their grills for the festivities. But there are a few things to know before firing up your grill in the cold. Don't expect it to behave like it would in warmer weather. Grilling in cold weather takes longer. Preheating your gas grill can take twice as long. So first, make sure that you have an uh, have ample fuel on hand and that the fuel tank is kept above freezing because otherwise the gas won't flow. Also, make sure that your grill is clear of snow and that the lid and knobs aren't frozen shut. If they are, don't force them open. That could damage the grill. Instead, let the grill defrost in a warmer spot such as the garage or use a hairdryer. 
Then think carefully about where to set up your grill. Don't place it too close to the house. 10 feet away is best for fire safety and never grill in an enclosed space such as a covered patio or a garage because of carbon monoxide poisoning risks. Try to position the grill in a way that's shielded from wind so the flames don't blow out on a gusty day. When you fire up the grill, the flame should typically burn mostly blue, not yellow. Mostly yellow could indicate clogged air inlets or burners that need adjusting. Heat will escape every time you lift the lid, prolonging grilling time. An app-connected wireless meat thermometer lets you monitor the temperature so you can make sure meat is thoroughly cooked without raising the lid. When you're finished, clean your grill while it's still hot. Food debris is much harder to scrub off in the cold. So there you go. There are your food and cooking questions, especially about grilling in the wintertime. I don't think I ever thought to do that, but that's some handy tips. I didn't know that if you're if it's below freezing, your propane tank won't work. I did not know that. All right, let's go on to some appliance questions. Is buying a used appliance a good idea? Consumer Report Magazine answers... Our experts say that buying a lightly used appliance can be a smart move, particularly when it comes to ranges, washers, dryers, and refrigerators. Our research found that you might pay about half the price of a new model. Sometimes buying and installing a used appliance can even cost less than repairing a current broken one. It takes some legwork and you need to be willing to live with the a mismatched kitchen or laundry suit, but in return, you can find a top-of-the-line appliance for a fraction of what it would cost new. You may even get features you couldn't afford otherwise. Consumer Report Magazine recommends looking in used appliance stores or local repair shops instead of places such as Facebook Marketplace or Yard Sales. Prices tend to be lower at local shops, And we found that many offer a warranty with coverage ranging from six weeks to six months, including parts and labor. Plus, some repair shops have technicians who inspect appliances and replace worn out parts before selling. Thrift stores may also offer good deals, but their pre-sale inspections might not go beyond plugging in an appliance to ensure that it turns on. Whenever you shop, always try to learn the age of the appliance. That way, you can balance its remaining useful life with its price. I know when I was moving into my first home, I got uh, used washer and dryer, and they lasted for years and years. So I, I I don't see anything wrong with that idea of buying a used appliance. And I'm pretty sure I bought them at uh, Dawn's Appliance, which I think everybody's aware of. I'm not doing a commercial or anything, but that's where I bought them. So that's probably the type of store that you want to buy used appliances for because uh, the the repairs that they do before they sell it, and then uh, you might get a warranty as well. So here's another household question. Can I use a liquid clog remover on a stopped up toilet? While many liquid or gel clog removing products can work wonders on a clogged sink or shower, most aren't necessarily designed for your toilet. This may be because the formulas are ineffective on toilet clogs and or contain highly corrosive chemicals such as sodium hydrochloride, 
which can potentially cause plumbing problems or even damage toilet pipes. That damage would probably require professional repair or replacement. If your plunger isn't getting the job done, try using an enzyme cleaner, such as Green Gobbler Drain Clog Dissolver. This type of cleaner employs a concentrated mixture of bacteria to break down organic matter without the use of sodium hydroxide and other chemicals that can harm your toilet or septic system. Or pour a good amount of toilet bowl cleaner directly into the bowl and let it sit for at least 30 minutes. Many regular toilet bowl cleaners contain hydrogen peroxide, which can help break down waste so that your toilet bowl can drain. You can also buy a plumbing snake, a flexible auger used to dislodge clogs, but if the clog is that bad, you may be better off calling a pro. All right, so on we go to technology questions. All right, so... Here is a question from a Consumer Report magazine reader, and they say, My laptop is 10 years old. Should I replace it? Here's how Consumer Report magazine answers. There comes a time when it's smarter to buy a new laptop rather than struggle to get the old one to do what you want it to do. (laughs) Um, You know, there's few signs that suggest it's time for a new laptop. These include reduced battery life, error message saying you're running low on disk space, and general sluggishness. When your battery health drops to 80% of its original capacity, it's a sign that the battery is dying. To measure battery health, download an app that can gauge battery capacity, such as Battery Info View for Windows or Battery Health 2 for Mac operating system. Newer laptops usually have the ability to stay charged for longer than 12 hours, with some surpassing 20 hours. As for storage, you may find that your digital needs have outgrown what your old laptop can handle. First, free up space by moving local files and photos to a cloud storage system, such as iCloud or OneDrive. But keep in mind that a 256-gigabyte solid-state drive and an 8-gigabyte of RAM are the minimum many users now require. If your computer specs are well below that, it's uh, probably time to get a new one. For a new laptop, that should take you through the next 10 years. You may want to aim for an SSD model with around 512 gigabytes of storage and 16 gigabytes of RAM, especially if you keep many tabs open in the browser and save files locally. New laptops also have multi-core processors, which are better suited to handle the complexity of today's websites and apps. If you can't upgrade to the latest operating system, which has the newest security updates, you're putting yourself at risk. Consumer Report Magazine goes on to say, if you're stuck using an old operating system or a browser that no, that's no longer supported, your laptop should be replaced. Microsoft stopped supporting Windows 7 in early 2020. Windows 11 is due to be released this fall, making now a good time for a new laptop. See, in my opinion, that's how they get you to continually buy something new, is that they just stop supporting the old Windows stuff. Even though it works for you, you like it, 
they're just going to keep quit supporting it and then you have to go out and buy something new so that laptop's not going to last you 10 years if they're continually you know want to stop supporting the software or the operating system that that laptop uses and so i think that's uh pretty uh uh, that's not right you know (laughs) so all right up next i have a video that was posted by our friend theo joe we've heard theo joe here on the show before he's our technology expert he posts videos all the time on youtube and i i always like to uh air those when i can hit uh, this latest video is windows 11 now will support old cpus with a catch so we will listen to that coming up next so we have some good news for anyone who's been following the windows 11 saga and specifically anyone who wanted to upgrade to windows 11 when it comes out but realized that their computer for one reason or another didn't meet the minimum requirements for the most part this had to do with the generation of the cpu for example with me i had all the other requirements but my CPU was apparently too old, seemed kind of arbitrary. However, the big news is that Microsoft apparently made some statements to some news outlets, specifically like The Verge, stating that unofficially, you will be able to upgrade to Windows 11 even if you are not on a supported CPU, you just have to manually install it using either the Windows 11 media creation tool or an ISO which is not really a big deal. I mean, that's something you could easily acquire. So basically anyone who wants to upgrade should be able to, it's just you're not gonna get an automatic update, which is something they should have just allowed from the beginning. It makes complete sense. If someone understands these supposed risks, they should be allowed to install it anyway. And people were trying to figure out how to get around it anyway, and now they'll won't have to. And apparently you won't even have to do a clean install. You will be able to do just a regular upgrade using the ISO or media creation tool from Windows 10 to Windows 11 without having to do a clean install. Now there's a couple things I should point out. First of all, this is not gonna be official or advertised by Microsoft in any way. Just some news articles said they talked to some representatives who said that the ISO installer will not stop you from doing this, but nowhere on Microsoft's website does say that you will have the ability to do this. Believe me, I looked, so it's gonna be really unofficial, not advertised. You'll just have to know that you can do it. However, apparently the ISO file or media creation tool will still check for other hardware requirements that are stated with Windows 11. For example, a minimum of 64 gigabytes of storage and at least a dual core CPU. Those aren't a big deal, but the third one is a TPM chip of some kind. And that's the one that a lot of people are kind of confused about because that is one that a lot of people might not have. Now, it's still not very clear whether or not the final Windows 11 version will actually require a TPM chip. There have been a couple articles that didn't say anything about TPM chip in their stated requirements that Microsoft said, whereas a couple others either said that, yes, it will require TPM 1.2 or they're not sure but it kind of lines up that it probably will require at least TPM 1.2 because the Windows 11 Insider ISOs do require that. There's a hardware check. And also back when Microsoft originally had the compatibility page for Windows 11, you might not remember this, they removed it pretty quickly, but originally it had two different floors, they called it, for the requirements. One was a hard floor, one was a soft floor. So the soft floor was like the official requirements. It was TPM 2.0 and a 8th gen Intel or Zen 2 plus processor from AMD. So the idea being, even if your computer didn't support 
these soft floor requirements, it could still be installed as long as you had the hard floor requirements, which are TPM 1.2, it had to have minimum, and there was no CPU generation requirement. So still, no matter what, apparently you probably will need TPM 1.2. This was a requirement even before they took down that page, the Windows 11 Insider require it, and you probably will need it for the final version. Now, I made a video relatively recently talking about how your computer probably actually does have a TPM chip, even though it might not say it when you run the PC Health Checker app. A lot of CPUs that are several years old even have a TPM module built into the CPU, but it's not enabled by default in the BIOS. So I go through in that video how to go through and look to see if your computer does have that and which ones probably do. And also, even if your CPU does not, if you custom built your computer, and even maybe if you didn't, a lot of motherboards may actually have a slot where you can go and buy a TPM chip and actually plug it into the motherboard. But you'll have to find out if you can potentially do that. I explained that all in the video, I'll have it pop out. So definitely check that out if you're not sure if your computer has a TPM chip or is capable of having one. Now, having heard this, you might be wondering, just like I did, Okay, so if you actually can install Windows 11 on older CPUs, why does Microsoft have this arbitrary, seemingly, requirement for certain generations of CPUs? It's really stupid. Well, it turns out there actually is a reason. Microsoft released a blog post basically talking about all the stuff that they implemented in Windows 11 that not every CPU has. And a couple of them have to do with DCH drivers, which are like a modern version of drivers that a lot of older hardware doesn't have, but newer hardware does have. And the other big thing has to do with a few different virtualization technologies, which are related to security, which basically at the heart of it, allow the computer and operating system to isolate certain data from other programs in the system. So it prevents malicious software from being able to inject into memory of core processes and stuff. And there's a feature in more modern CPUs called MBEC, which basically allows this to happen without a detriment to performance. Whereas on older CPUs, which just happen to be the CPU generations and older that are not supported by Windows 11, those older ones don't have this feature. And even though you technically can enable the memory isolation feature, it can reduce the CPU performance by like 40% or so. So finally, we find out the reason, which is Windows 11 kind of wants to heavily rely on this security feature that other older CPUs don't support. So they just said, all right, well, we're going to support newer CPUs that do support it. Now, why Microsoft did not just come out and say this from the beginning, I have no idea. I think people would have been so much more understanding and less pissed off than what they did, which was just arbitrarily put out this CPU generation list, even though it was pretty clear that it ran on older computers, but they didn't explain why you needed newer ones. It was so stupid. Basically, they had the option of either telling people, hey, your CPU doesn't support an important security feature integral to Windows 11, so it's not supported, unfortunately. Or they could go with, hey, your CPU is just too old. Sorry. Hmm, I wonder which one they should go with. Which one would I do? Ah, you know, let's do the second one. That's a great idea. Now, I'll probably have to make a separate video explaining in more detail the stuff that newer CPUs support mostly that the older ones doesn't. And that's the reason for this generation requirement. And I'll go into more detail there. But that's just the basic explanation. So at least now, though, we do know that even if your computer doesn't officially support it, if you do know you really want to get to Windows 11, you can choose to do it. 
although you might need to get that TPM module. However, apparently there are some ways you can even get around that, but it's a little bit more difficult. So at least it's not the end of the world. Now, again, if you guys wanna keep watching, the next video I'd recommend is definitely my TPM compatibility guide, basically, where I did go over how to figure out if your computer does have a TPM module after all, and how you can potentially get one or find out if your motherboard supports it, if not. So definitely check that out. You can click on that there. And if you guys wanna subscribe, I make a couple new videos a week, so it should be worth it. So thanks so much for watching, guys, and I'll see you in the next one. Okay, again, that was Windows 11 now will support old CPUs with a catch. And that was posted by Theo Joe on YouTube. So check it out if you want more information about that. All right, another question that comes from a Consumer Report magazine reader is, what's the easiest way to turn off a smoke detector when it's had a false alarm? As a matter of fact, we could have used this a couple of days ago when we had a little problem uh, with oil in the bottom of our oven. Uh, when you're certain there's no fire and you're not in danger, that loud, high-pitched alarm from your smoke detector quickly becomes annoying, and it can be tricky to make it stop. A false alarm may happen when you burn cookies, for example, and the smoke triggers your detector down the hall. Or it could be the result of a system malfunction caused by dust, humidity, electrical problems, or even spiders crawling inside the alarm. To quiet yours quickly, press and hold the reset button on the sounding unit. If you have hardwired smoke alarms, all the connected units will sound. So you may need to press reset on each detector until you find the initiating unit. On kitty models, the initiating unit will flash red or green at least once every second while in alarm mode. If that doesn't work, take down the smoke alarms and remove the batteries. If it has a lithium battery that you can't remove, put it inside your freezer to muffle the noise until it stops. <laughs> kitty says it can take eight minutes before an alarm stops on its own. For interconnected alarms, you may need to flip your circuit breaker or disconnect all the alarms and remove their batteries if possible. Once you've silenced the alarm, clean the unit by blowing compressed air through the gap on the side, then replace the batteries before putting the alarm back up. All right, so I think we solved our problem by just putting it outside. <laughs> and probably the neighbors were like, what is that noise? <laughs> All right, so now we have one more question from a CR reader. I need a cordless drill. Should I get a brushless or a brushed motor model? Here's how Consumer Report Magazine answers that. If you need a heavy-duty drill, going with a brushless model is a good bet because it's more powerful and energy efficient than a brushed motor model. Instead of using small metal contacts called brushes to keep the drill shaft spinning the way brush motors do, brushless models use an electronic circuit board and a sensor. This allows you to automatically adjust the speed, torque, and power supply to match the task at hand. But brushless drills are also more expensive, so if you have only the occasional light-duty task to accomplish, you may be fine with a less expensive brushed model. All right, so if you want to know more about brush versus brushless tools, what's the difference? The Honest Carpenter has posted a video on YouTube 
called exactly that, brush versus brushless tools. What's the difference? So we'll be hearing from him uh, coming up right now. What does the XR on this DeWalt drill mean? For that matter, what does the word fuel on some Milwaukee tools mean? And why is there such a huge variety in cost for certain power tools? It's complicated, but it often comes down to how these tools are engineered. And the biggest difference is often brush tools versus brushless. Brushless tools are taking over the domestic market and their cost is much greater, but their efficiency is often worth the price. Today, I'm gonna to talk about brand upgrades like XR and Fuel, and whether you really need the superior technology that drives them. And that's coming up next on The Honest Gardener Show. So brushless technology is not exactly new. It's been around for several decades and it only used to be seen in industrial machinery like conveyor belts. But now we're seeing it in our handheld power tools and it's causing some confusion. The general understanding is that brushless is better. And that's true. But why is it better? Really, it all comes down to longevity and power. Traditional brush tools rely on a rotary action, and to create this action, they use a brushed DC motor system. If you're careful, you can take apart most older tools and see this for yourself. My old Chicago electric drill comes apart when a series of screws are taken out and the drill head is removed. Here, the motor is instantly laid bare. Brush tools refer to the presence of these things, carbon brushes. I know they don't actually look like brushes. They just look like little metallic blocks, but these carbon blocks are what allow the motor to work. They're trapped in these cradles, and springs force them downwards into contact with the commutator, this slotted cylinder. When you squeeze the trigger on a brush tool, power flows through a wire into the brushes, which transfers the electrical current into the commutator. The commutator then sends this energy into these coiled copper wires, known as an armature, which instantly takes on an electromagnetic charge. The armature's EM field pushes against a ring of stationary magnets surrounding it. A group of positively and negatively charged magnets move the armature in a rotating pattern, causing it to spin. This spin turns the tool's rotor, which turns a spiral gear on the end. The rotation is then transferred to the drill head and ultimately to the bit or blade that it's holding. That's how brush tools work, and they're really quite good. Everything from drills to routers and saws have used some version of it for decades. But their weakness is in the brushes themselves. Over time, brushes wear down from their contact with the commutator. They shrink like a pencil eraser. When this happens, the tool begins losing power. It quickly overheats, and you can even get sparking at the brushes. Now, some sparking is to be expected in brush tools. But if you see it continuously through the cooling vents, or if you can smell burning metal, it means that the brushes are shot. Brushes can be replaced, and it's not that difficult to do. But no matter what, you always have that friction contact between brushes and commutators, which is just inefficient. Hence the development of the brushless motor. Brushless motors did away with the brushes and the commutators. Instead, bigger magnets are mounted directly to the rotor, and a larger armature surrounds these magnets. This armature has an attached circuit board, which acts as a little brain. It controls the charge of the armature, causing the magnets on the rotor to spin. This is a much more efficient system because nothing is in contact with anything else. There's no friction, no rubbing, no wear and tear. Also, because the brushes and commutator are gone, it means that the tool overall can shrink in size a little bit, but more space can be devoted to the armature and magnets, meaning that the tool actually gets stronger. And the little circuit board in the tool can even detect feedback from the rotor. So if you're boring something soft, the chip will tell it not to work as hard, thereby saving power. But if you're boring something dense, it'll pull more power from the battery as needed. Brushless motors are just all around smarter and more efficient. 
so they can deliver 20 to 30% more torque and speed, and they'll often last for tens of thousands of hours of usage. But of course you have to pay for this. And across the board, brushless tools are about 30% more expensive. And one of the real frustrations of this engineering surge is that it's kind of hard to tell what's what anymore. For instance, DeWalt XR stands for extreme runtime. On a tool, it means that the tool is brushless. But on a battery, it just means that the battery has higher amp hours and a larger fuel tank. So XR batteries can actually work with 20 volt max tools, which are not brushless. And Milwaukee tools can be really confusing. Some of the M18 tools are brushless and some aren't. And all of their fuel tools are brushless, but they also have power state technology, which means that they're super effective brushless and therefore cost significantly more than normal brushless. And Makita, as far as I can tell, doesn't have any sort of dedicated brushless series. It seems that their LXT series all simply share great lithium ion batteries, but you need to determine whether individual tools in the brand are brushed or brushless. Really, you're always better off doing this research on a case-by-case -case basis. If you want a brushless tool, make sure that whatever you're looking at is or isn't brushless. Then find out what battery line is necessary to run it. And in the end, the big question is, do you really need brushless tools? It depends. Pros can always benefit from the longer battery life and max efficiency of brushless. And many pros prefer Milwaukee for this, especially electricians and plumbers. But DeWalt and Makita are also fantastic lines. And if you're a devoted DIYer who uses your tools every week, then you'll probably be glad you invested in their brushless tools. But brush tools got us by for decades, and they still remain a really great option for casual use. Just be sure to watch out for the signs that your brushes are starting to fade. What did you think of this video? Was this explanation helpful? Do you have an opinion on brushless tools? Let me hear about it down below, especially from you pros out there. I'm going to link both brushless and brush tools down below in the description. Feel free to shop those links, and remember that when you do, we receive a tiny commission from whatever you buy at no extra charge to you. As always, thanks for watching. Be sure to check back in for more videos coming up soon, and please consider subscribing and hitting that little bell button to turn on notifications. That way you'll know the moment we post something. I'm Ethan James with TheHonestCarpenter.com. I'll see you next time. All right, again, that was the Honest Carpenter, uh, that the title of the video, if you want to go view it on YouTube, is Brush versus Brushless Tools, What's the Difference? All right, so that's going to do it for our edition of Ask the Consumer Report Magazine's Experts segment of our show. And, uh, yeah, we're heading to the end of the show so let's uh go ahead and sign off if you have any questions or comments on what you heard today on the show you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com i'm also on facebook at consumer review report and on twitter at crr in mckeesport this is the Consumer Review Report on Tube City Online Radio, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc. This show is heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesdays at 6 p.m., and Thursdays at 9 a.m. If you miss our regularly scheduled shows, however, you can catch podcasts on iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. So... Without any further ado, I'm Diane Rebecca wishing everyone a safe and good week. <laughs>